you would please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. You know, there are, there are right and wrong views of Scripture. There are places that we are uncertain about things and other places that we are somewhat certain and then thing, places that we are certain. And usually when you talk about the sovereignty of God in salvation, people fall on one frame or the other. Either it's just entirely free will, God has nothing to do with it, and they're adamant about that, or it's the sovereignty of God, His elect, that He has predestined, and there's this chasm that sits there. I rarely meet anybody who's right in the middle. A few people I have come up to and met that say, you know, I don't really care. You know, it is what it is, fine, it works out, I believe in Christ, I'm going to get to heaven. It doesn't really matter to me. If that's you... You can take a nap here for the next 45 minutes. The rest of us are going to look at Scripture and see what we find here in Luke chapter 18. About every six months or so we hit on a, on a uh, passage that is particularly um, clear on, on salvation. This is one of them. I've titled this, God Does the Impossible. I made a brief reference last week, kind of to tie this in, that I... When I was involved with missions years ago, that I had a mission agency, a, 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 a agency that helps facilitate missionaries who encouraged me to set up an advisory board. I mentioned that briefly last week. And that advisory board to my ministry was to uh, be filled with men who were independently wealthy. And part of the reason for that would be because they'd be able to introduce you to other independently wealthy men. And since that ministry that I was working at intersected the political arena, that wouldn't have been extremely difficult. There are lots of people out there with money who would love to one way or another have some kind of influence in the political arena. It did surprise me that the advice that I received didn't didn't challenge me to assure that they were men of prayer or men of the word or men who are faithful in their local church, but that they were men of money. And though I was fairly new in missions at the time, it quickly dawned on me how, at least from what we know, none of the apostles would have fit that criteria to sit on such an advisory board under that qualification. I ultimately decided not to form such a board. Everything went fine. And while ministering in the state capitol there, that was up in North Dakota, I had the pleasure of befriending a gentleman, while I was there, he was a state official, statewide elected official. Uh, he was not a believer. But he was invited to join the governing board of a local church. The church was traditionally the, the church of his wife's family. And though he express, expressed no desire to become a member, still by her association to the church, uh, they wanted him on their board. You know, privately he told me straight out, he goes, I know why they want me on the church board. It's because I'm wealthy. I have money to give. And even as an unbeliever, such a request, it didn't sit well with him at all. He sensed there was something wrong with that offer. It was not that there was anything inherently wrong with the fact that he was wealthy, for he had earned it in honest fashion. You know, having money isn't evil, Money itself is amoral. It can be used for good. It can be used for evil. And Scripture clarifies, it is the love of money that is a root, not the root, a root of all kinds of evil. It can be a root of evil. That's 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. And referencing that, I'd also, if since there's going to be a lot of citations in this particular message, you may want to grab a pen Jot down verses if, they, if uh, we cross them and you want to go back and reference again. For this leader, he realized the door to, the, to lead in that church opened only because he was wealthy. He had no other involvement and he also recognized he had no scriptural qualifications to fill such a position in church governance. You know, in the world, money opens virtually all doors. Most doors, at least, it provides access to a better education, it leads to superior job offers, it enhances the social class that you might marry into, it supplies your membership into the country club where you can meet more people and do business with them, more people who have 
money. And, and folks, this isn't anything new. It isn't anything strange. It, and, and it isn't going away. Even in communist and, and socialist countries where everything is proposed as fair and equitable, um, you still always get a ruling class with oligarchs who control virtually everything, all power. In fact, in fact it's, it's worse in most cases. This isn't going to change. We should also note you know, nepotism that occurs. You see it in, um, in and among Hollywood actors, professional sports, athletes. Uh, in the political arena, there are political dynasties, parents with money opening doors for their children to make even more money. Folks, I've I got to be honest. Personally, I don't resent it at all. I, I don't... I'm, I'm, Fortunately, as God has changed my heart, I wasn't always this way, but I don't find myself being a covetous person, wishing I had other people's stuff. I mean, you got me a, a nice full plate at Texas Roadhouse and a Diet Coke next to it. I mean, life is good. Life is good. Um, I don't resent the rich. In fact, sometimes I feel a little bit sorry for them. It's because the rich and powerful suppose that money can buy them anything. But the rich young ruler has discovered, to his dismay, really, to his dismay, there, there is one door that money won't open. The very door that he sought to enter, that is the door to inherit eternal life. You know, it's not that, that unbelievers don't want to enter heaven. Ne- nearly everyone wants that. It's one reason the, the tickets to heaven track that we have in the back there that we provide to people, supply to folks, things. One reason this is such an effective tool. I was reading it again uh, this past week. I hand out lots and lots and lots of them, and then I go, as I encourage other to use, others to use this, oh, make me rem- remember exactly what's in it. Presents the gospel very, very clearly. It's a great tool. Not a perfect tool. It's not the Bible. It's a great tool. They're very effective. It, it's rare to find someone who doesn't want entrance to heaven, right? Very rare. The real question is, do you want God? Do you want Him who is in heaven? Do you want to spend eternity with Him? Do you long for righteousness, for holiness, for, for sin to be removed? Do you, do, you, do you long for righteousness enough to forsake sin? You know, or, you know, are you striving, as it appeared this young man, this young rich ruler was, are you striving somehow to preserve your life as is? I'd like to go to heaven, but I really like what I do here on earth, even if it is sin. Uh, your and my sin may be different, but the, the rich young ruler was held captive in his sin of idolatry, a love of money that that he refused to walk away from. Let's read. It's a continuing story now, Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 24. It says, And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God! For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But Jesus said, The things that are impossible with people, they're possible with God. Boy, this is a beauty. This is a beauty. Even the rich young ruler's influence could not buy his way into heaven. He couldn't push open this door. I know about where your mind is about to run with this, what direction you're going. I'm going to try to head you off at the pass. Virtually everybody goes a particular direction with this passage. It's not the right direction. Because we we must acknowledge, we must acknowledge that, that what this passage does not say What it does not say 
In fact, none of the three Gospels that contain this account say it. Take a moment to think about it. Jesus does not say it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a poor man. He does not say that. He's not contrasting rich to poor in this passage. In fact, in Mark chapter 10, this is one other location we find this story, it says that Jesus, when looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, making this broader statement, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. How hard it is. This is a passage teaching how incredibly difficult it is to enter heaven. Incredibly difficult. In fact, Jesus will insist entering is impossible. Impossible. Even for a rich man. Do you see the difference there? Instead of contrasting rich to poor, Jesus' primary argument is not that having riches makes it impossible to enter the kingdom of God. His ad- because riches make everything else easier. Remarkably, entering the kingdom of God is not like holding a membership you know, at the Breakers Resort in West Palm. You can't, you can't buy your way in. That influence won't get your way into heaven. It'll get you influence pretty much everywhere else. That's the difference between the world and God. Uh, In fact, verse 25 says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Some have proposed that, well, this statement, you know, it, it just shows that it is impossible for any rich person to get into heaven. It's impossible. Rich people are prohibited. You know, God doesn't even like them. We shouldn't like them either. God doesn't want rich people around up there. Therefore, we shouldn't like them because God doesn't like them. Boy, boy, folks, that is tough news for Father Abraham. Isaac, Jacob, who had huge herds, rich people. Uh, But wait a second. Our scripture reading in chapter 9 that we read earlier actually tells us that, but they get in somehow. Those rich people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they assuredly get in somehow, and you know how. Because Romans chapter 9 just told us how. It's the same way for rich people like King David and Solomon, and, and, and of course the one percenters alive today, like you and me. You look at the world scale, the population of the world economic scale, folks, we are immensely rich, incredibly rich. We better hope rich people can get to heaven. Fortunately for us, The only thing that this statement assures us is when taking into account the natural realm, not the spiritual or the supernatural realm, but the natural realm, taking into consideration the natural realm, it is impossible for a rich man to enter heaven. Impossible. It's not merely hard. It's impossible. Verse 27 assures that like a camel passing through The eye of a needle, a wealthy man entering heaven, 100% impossible. Humanly impossible. Uh, We we know this explanation, really, of being impossible, is, is that's what Jesus' disciples understood. Because Matthew 19 and Mark 10 both tell us that those who heard it were very astonished. Very astonished they're listening to Jesus. Uh, scripture says that they were ekpleso. That's a Greek word, particular Greek word. It, it meant to be utterly amazed. In fact, when I looked into my Greek lexicon, that's like a, a fancy dictionary with Greek and relates it to other words and other things. It says this. 
that this word means to be or become astounded to such a degree as to nearly lose one's mental composure. They were freaking out. They were freaking out. If even the rich can't get in, then who can? They were living in a culture where doors always open to the rich. Doors were always open. Uh, The rich clearly had the ability to give more alms than anybody else. They could give more away if they so desired. Uh, Jews were conditioned to believe that almsgiving, uh, giving to charity that is, uh, was key to entering heaven. That is the way that most of them felt you got in, by how much you give. Uh, Unbelievers, folks, they, they still think this way today. They truly do. Some of us even forget. We've been believers for so long, we kind of forget how we used to think. Unbelievers today still think this way. They believe they will go to heaven because they they just gave to add a wing to the children's hospital. It's got their family name on it. I'm a good person. Or because they contribute to a soup kitchen or volunteer in a soup kitchen or because they financially support the Institute for Cancer Research. Whatever it may be, they're forcing the door open with their giving. They think they're good. As we learned last week, Jesus told this rich young ruler, none is good. There are none who is good. Only God is good. So you've got to take good out of the equation, because we're not good. And giving itself, does not, giving itself does not regenerate a human heart. It doesn't transform and make a human heart alive to God. There's all kinds of people who give, give, and give, who have no relationship with Christ whatsoever. Giving doesn't transform a heart. Then last week I, I read you a whole string of verses, you probably remember, that assure that we are not good. We're not good. Uh, like this ruler, unbelievers today still refuse to admit that truth. They, they do. They just refuse to say that we mean I'm not good. But sadly, they, they don't give to charity because they're good people. They give because their hearts are deceived into believing that it makes the doors open to them. If I give, if there's a God, you can't refuse me. I've been good. Wrong answer. We haven't been good. Not only that, but entrance into heaven cannot be purchased. You can't buy it. Not even a rich person can buy it. There isn't enough money. It's impossible. Why then to believing Christians such as us? When you think about that, why, why do we give? If it's not to force our way into heaven or buy our way into heaven, why are we doing it? As I said earlier, as we prayed in Colossians, it says we've been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. We've already been transferred. We're already in. We give... For this reason, Matthew 5, verse 16, so that our light will shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify Father who is in heaven. We bring glory to God as as we as his redeemed people. As we give in the name of Christ, proclaiming the name of Christ and the goodness that people see that that Christ has granted us faith, God's granted us faith in Christ as a free gift. For believers, for us, charity is not an effort to appease God. We're not on a balance scale here. Maybe if I give enough here, it'll offset my sins over here. It's not an effort to appease God. That's not our giving. Charity is our response of worship toward God. It is an act of worship from those who already know him, who are already redeemed, have already been transferred into his kingdom. It's it's never a mechanism to acquire or achieve salvation. It is a response to the goodness that God has shown to us. Is there a big difference? Yeah. What you believe in your heart? That matters. The difference is between heaven and hell. Are you giving because you think it makes you a good person versus are you giving because you're a repentant sinner who has trusted in Christ and you're giving to others because you now love because God first loved us? 
The chasm there is, is infinite, heaven and hell. Mankind can't purchase entrance into the kingdom. It's impossible. Folks, it's impossible. There's got to be another way. There's got to be another way. We'll get to how and by whom in just a few minutes. Before we do, though, there's a myth. Actually, actually it's, it's a fairy tale. It's a straight-out fairy tale. Needs to be exposed. It's about the camel going through the eye of a needle. The people, remember, were, were dumbfounded. They were, they were losing their minds. They were, they were freaking out because Jesus said, going, getting to heaven is it's, it's tougher. It's impossible. Camel going through an eye of a needle would be easier, even for a rich man. So entering heaven's impossible. It isn't merely hard. It isn't just hard to enter. And Jesus' audience understood the expression was designed to emphasize just how impossible it was. That's why they lost their composure. There's a false teaching out there. It's quite common. And it insists that Jesus didn't actually mean that entering the kingdom was impossible, but only that it was really hard. It takes extra human effort. It's up to us. It's been proposed that the, the eye of the needle, that that was a name of a unique entrance, a gate through the wall in Jerusalem. It's called the eye of the needle, it is supposed. The height was supposedly so low that a camel could only pass under it if it got down and it struggled through on its knees. You heard that one? Yeah, you, you watch T.D. Jakes, don't you? And you're exposed. Yeah, this eye of the needle they propose was, was so low and so small that a camel could only get down and struggle its way through on its knees. That's how we get to heaven. We, we fight our way in there. We struggle our way through. Um, folks, that suggestion is complete fiction. Complete fiction. Um, there is no evidence in the Bible or in secular literature describing Jerusalem or in archaeology that there is any such gate. It never did ex- exist. It never has existed. It's a farce that was manufactured within the free will theology to suggest that Jesus didn't really mean getting to heaven was impossible. But, but just, it just takes a lot of extra effort to crawl on through on your knees. No, no. You know, my mom used to call things like that a bunch of bunk. It's not. That's not what the eye of the needle is. It's exactly what Jesus says here. Jesus means it's impossible. It is impossible. Fortunately, when the people ask, well, who then can be saved? He, he responds. He gives the answer. By the way, Jerry, I saw T.D. Jakes do that too, so I'm in with you. All right. Jesus responds, who then can be saved? Matthew 19, 26. With people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. They're all possible. Uh, Folks, there's hope. Praise the Lord. There is hope for everybody. If you got a MacArthur Study Bible, the, uh, the note under this passage here correctly states this about the camel passing through the eye of the needle. He writes, quote, The obvious point of that picturesque expression of hyperbole is not that salvation is difficult, but rather that it is humanly impossible for everyone by any means, including the wealthy. Unquote. Impossible for everybody. Shocking conclusion is even a rich guy can't buy his way in there. There, there would have been gasps. What? What? Are, are you kidding me? Who then could possibly enter? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked. Entering heaven is impossible for all men and all women. Uh, we are dead in trespasses of sin. It trespasses and sin. Not just poor men. Not just rich men, all men. Scripture says all have turned aside and together we've become useless. There is none who seeks after God. That's a zero. 
Not even one. There's none who understands, another zero. None who fear God is zero. None does good, not even one. We're a bunch of zeros. And as we discovered last week, the Apostle Paul in Romans 3 verse 10, where those, those words come from, merely the Apostle Paul reiterates what the Old Testament stated and had always said. Man in his natural state, dead to God, is, is irreconcilable. He's alienated from God in our natural state. A rich man's sin, he might, it might be rooted in in pride in all of his riches. The poor man's heart has the identical sinful nature. His sin might be anger at God because he doesn't have riches. The human heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. And what troubles Jesus' audience is that even a massive amount of wealth can't overcome this, can never push that door open. A man or woman trying to enter heaven by any human resource, any at all, it's like a camel trying to pass through the eye of a needle, is not going to happen. Can't happen. Ephesians 2 verse 1 explains by assuring us that before spiritual rebirth, let me explain that just for a second because I remember a story of a woman I was speaking to out here who'd come from a denomination and I was talking to her about being born again and spiritual rebirth and, and things like this and she's like, I don't understand what you're saying. She just had never heard that terminology of being born again. Being born again or a spiritual rebirth is the moment that you become alive to what God has shown you in the scriptures, that Christ is the, the Savior of the world, that you're sinful, that, that uh, you're grieved by your sin because there's a conviction of sin. The Holy Spirit has convicted you, that's a ministry of His, and that you have finally become alive to what the Bible says about Christ being the Savior of all humanity. That's being born again. But Ephesians 2 verse 1 assures that before spiritual rebirth, we were dead in trespasses and sin. Not on life support, but dead. Ephesians 2 verse 3 says we were by nature children of wrath. That was our nature. The unregenerate human nature before conversion, we are children of wrath. And then Ephesians 2 verse 4, you can hit all these, just swinging your Bible open to Ephesians chapter 2. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive. Who's active and who's passive there? He's active, we're passive. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and he raised us up with him. Again, who's active and who's passive? God is active, we are passive. He made us alive, He raised us up. It's an impossible achievement that we could have done on our own. Being being saved, impossible. God did it for us. We were dead, He made us alive. So, So it's God who does what is humanly impossible. But it is divinely possible. All things are possible with God. He makes us alive when we were previously spiritually dead. We were dead. We were a corpse. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. And we know how old Nick responded. He's like, who then can enter the kingdom? Can I go back and be born again? Can I enter my mother's womb? Can a man do that? Now that I'm old, it just, just sounds impossible. Jesus said, you're right on. It is impossible. That which is born of flesh is flesh. Just unregenerate nature. It's humanly impossible. Then he says, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Speaking the spiritual realm now, not just the human realm. You must be spiritually reborn to enter the kingdom. Then he describes the Holy Spirit this way. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. That's the sovereign Holy Spirit. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Everyone. 
Not just some, but everyone who is born again is born of the sovereign spirit of God. God the Holy Spirit is sovereign in regeneration, in, in turning our heart toward God, making us alive. God makes us who were, we who were spiritually dead in sin, he makes us alive. Uh, this is just something we can't do ourselves. You can't do it. It's not humanly possible for, for a poor man or a rich man. We're all born into this world spiritually dead. We were by nature children of wrath. When facing God's imminent judgment for sin, this is Israel now, the prophet Jeremiah proclaimed to them, the nation of Israel, they would be carried away into exile. Because of all of your sin, uh, your unwillingness to, to obey, inability to obey, in fact, uh, Jesus we spoke at that time outside of Jerusalem. He goes, how, how often I want to gather you. You're just unwilling. That's what people are. They're just unwilling. They like their sin better. All of us are in that state until God works through our heart. We're unwilling. But they were going to be carried away into judgment. There's nothing they could do to prevent it. And Jeremiah 13 verse 22 says this. God told them, If you say in your heart, why have these things happened to me? Because of the magnitude of your iniquity, your skirts have been removed and your heels have been exposed. Then God says, can an Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard change his spots? Then you also can do good who is accustomed to doing evil? The answer is no. No, you can't. You can't cease the evil that arises from you naturally. No more uh, can we choose good or choose God than an Ethiopian or a leopard can change their color. God says, you can't do it. You are what you are. You're born in sin. That's why Jesus told his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. John 15, 16. They, They couldn't. You know, just understanding this, it should make us incredibly humble to think that there's nothing we could do on our own. Just incapable of doing anything on our own. Uh, We couldn't save ourselves by choosing God. Uh, There was nothing spiritually alive in us, in our fallen nature, that we could do to save ourselves. We credit our spiritual uh, uh, rebirth and salvation entirely to God. 100%. Nothing in us. Whether you are rich or poor, God does the impossible. That's what He does. Titus 3, verse 3 describes spiritual regeneration in this fashion. Now we get to the good stuff. For we were also, speaking to Christians now, in reference to when we were non-Christians, before we were saved, for we also were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hating, hateful of one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Speaking to Christians, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, But according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, being justified by grace. We are saved by grace, through faith. Even the faith is not of ourselves. You know, faith isn't a dormant quality that we just need to stir up and and get people rolling around and get some faith into them. Faith's not a dormant quality we, we all have, that all humanity is born with um, as a latent quality that just needs to be massaged correctly, to be resuscitated, and to become spiritually alive. It's not what faith is. We're conceived in sin, we're dead in sin, uh, when we're delivered at the hospital. We're, we're spiritually stillborn. Every person on the planet. John 1, 1, 11 says, But as to as many as receive him, to those who believe in his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, 
nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Not of the will of man. So much for free will theology right there. Goes completely out the window. James 1.18 says it this way. In the exercise of his will, God brought us forth. That, that, that phrase there, brought us forth, literally means gave birth to us. The rebirth, the spiritual rebirth. In an exercise of his will, God brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be kind of first fruits among his creatures. Spiritual regeneration, uh, salvation are an exercise of his will, not our own, not the human will. 1 Peter 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We're entirely passive. In the Greek tense, we're entirely passive in all of these. This is done to us. Not something we do. We don't initiate. God initiates. In Scripture, salvation, it's always an act of God's will. It's not an act of the human will. Uh, as a youth, as I, in our old Lutheran confession, we used to recite this every Sunday, and it was a very spiritually dead church. But these are things that were passed down generation after generation in liturgy. And we used to say every Sunday, we confess that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. That's what we confessed every Sunday, and it was true. Cannot free ourselves. It's impossible. Somebody has to do it. God does the impossible. Now, a little caution, a little caution here, a little balance. The Bible does not suggest that we don't have any human will. Don't get that. That'll be the charge that will come. Well, what do you mean? We're robots, then, if there's no human will. Um, no, the Bible says, previous to conversion, that our will is not free. We're in bondage to sin. We are enslaved to it, is the verbiage that the Bible uses, meaning we can't choose God in and of ourselves without the Holy Spirit moving. For none seeks after God, not even one. But you're, but you're not a robot. You're not a robot, I'm not a robot. You know, you can choose the color of your car. You, you can pick a, a college to attend, things like this. But you can't change your spots. And you can't change God. Scripturally, spiritually, impossible. Romans chapter 9. Our scripture reading earlier ensures the idea that God will never interfere with the human will. I don't know how many of you have heard this. I've heard it time and again. The suggestion that we... That God will never interfere with the human will. That, that is, honestly, scriptural malpractice. That's what it is. There the Apostle Paul tells us that although God chose to work through Israel for a season, He has now set them aside. He's grafted in the Gentiles. Paul writes how God first chose Abraham, and, and then He chose Isaac. Isaac is the line of promise now, the descendants of Isaac, meaning, in contrast to Ishmael, God chose Isaac. The line is going to continue through him. And then Romans 9 verse 10 says, and not only this, not only was it Abraham and then Isaac, but there also was Rebekah, that's Isaac's wife. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, same father, get this, People think, well, then they're both in if it's through Isaac. No, not all Israel is Israel, right? As she conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born, had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, God who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is unmistakably divine choice. It, it is election. It's election. Scripture takes great strides, great strides to emphasize that neither of those twins had ever done anything moral. None had done anything good or bad. Nobody deserved election. That's what it's meaning there. 
It also wasn't because of works. Neither one of them done any works. But it is according to God who calls. It's God's sovereign choice. Paul continues to explain then, as God's advocate, Paul being the apostle, uh, being an advocate for God, he says this, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, here's the conclusion. It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, even Pharaoh who was unbeliever, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. See, it was the resistance of Pharaoh that made God so great as he led Israel out into freedom. He says, so then, God has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Shake your heads, no. Or does not the potter have a right over the clay? Uh, the creator has the right to do what he desires with his creation. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Thank Pharaoh. Paul says, and he did so. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, that is us, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. God permits wrath and destruction to make known as an illustration to, to his vessels of mercy how great the riches of his grace are. Look what we have been saved from. It's amazing. It's amazing. The earth is filled with reprobate sinners, all eight billion of us. Dead in our trespasses and sin, incapable of saving ourselves. It's humanly impossible. Everyone on earth deserves condemnation. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That includes everybody. But God, anxious to show how magnificent His mercy is, has displayed it on some. He's shown mercy on some. And He did the impossible by regenerating our hearts, by bestowing to us the gift of faith in Christ Jesus. Summary, what does this make Christians? What, what does it make us? Make us special? No. We're nothing more than recipients of sovereign grace. God has saved us. We can take no credit for salvation. Zero. We didn't conjure up faith and make a choice on our own. It was God who initiated it. We don't even get to boast that we made the choice. Some people love to boast. No, no, I chose him. Does it sometimes feel like we chose him? Yeah. Sometimes our experience feels like we chose him. It does. But scripture assures that my human experience and choice are a response to God. Not the cause. My experience of choosing God and praying, receiving him as Savior, is a response to what the Holy Spirit has done when he initiated it. I didn't start it. It's a divine calling of the Holy Spirit. In John 6, verse 37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. So God's grace is irresistible. He chooses who will come. And God is also sovereign in unconditional election. Ephesians 1 verse 4. He chose us. Ephesians 1 verse 4 now. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we might be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us as adoption to, son, to adoption as sons 
through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. His will. It's his will. Predestination and election never imply simply foreknowledge. That is a protest that you'll get from time to time. Uh, Gerald explained this well in one of the Bible lesson classes a while back. People want to say, well, God just knew. He only knew who was going to come to faith. There's a big problem with that. Because if your will is free, and God from eternity past, or from the foundation of the world was looking forward, and he only knew who was ultimately going to make a choice, and he wrote your name down in the book of life back then, because he knew what was going to happen, at that point then, do you now have free will to choose opposite? You can't do anything except what God saw back then. So that doesn't free your will up. It doesn't work out. No way you cut it works out. Sounds good until you really start getting down to the brass tacks. Uh, Romans 8.28 says, it's not just foreknowledge, and, and we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. He, 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 He. What shall we say to these things then? Paul says, if God is for us, well, who can be against us? Praise God! Are we recipients of grace or What? It doesn't get any better than this. People think, well, what if I think I'm a Christian and, and, and maybe I'm not chosen? No, no, that's not what he's saying. If you're a Christian, you're chosen. You don't have to worry about that. The rich young ruler, we'll close here very shortly. The rich young ruler learned with, with great, great sadness. He couldn't inherit eternal life by keeping the law. No one is good. Only God is good. He discovered that you can't buy your way in. Salvation's not by good works, and it's not by how much money you have. He had all the money of Bill Gates. If you had that, you still couldn't purchase salvation. It's humanly impossible. So in uh, recognizing our inability and frailty, God does for us the impossible. And uh, also the providence of God you're wondering why. Why do we go through this? Why do we talk about this? Because it's important. Providence of God is not a, not a peripheral doctrine. Shades everything that you see in Scripture. Did I do it or did God do it? The free will says, well, I do it. Oh, it shades everything as you read it. God did it. God gets glory for everything. So this is incredibly crucial. It enhances the understanding of our hearts as we worship who saved us, as you'll probably notice in our closing verse, it will enhance the way that you sing the words in our closing verse Gerald's going to give us. Through what view of God are you worshiping? Do you sing to a God, uh, to God who on the cross merely made salvation possible and then begs for you to believe? Or do you sing to a sovereign God who literally saved you? Literally saved you. When you pray during evangelism, which makes it really an oxymoron uh, to pray to a God who doesn't have the power to save people, a God who can't influence the human will, and you're praying to Him for, you're praying that you might be able to sway opinions, it's not what we're doing. We're proclaiming the holiness of God and asking the Holy Spirit to move. It's the same with preaching. Is the preacher relying upon eloquence and, and emotional allure and enticing arguments to try to win people. Come up, folks. Come on, come on. Please, please, please. God, God can't go on another day without you. Come to the front. Is that what the preacher's doing? Enticing people to make your best life now? Or in preaching the word, are we proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and expecting the Holy Spirit to redeem His chosen? That's what we're doing in preaching. In case you're wondering, the providence of God in election and predestination, that, that this is the historical view of the Christian church. The view that it was from the beginning. It's clearly the view of the human writers of the Bible that the Holy Spirit inspired, both Old Testament and New. It was the understanding of the early church and St. Augustine. 
So his position uh, is the position of the Reformers, John Calvin, John Knox, Martin Luther, Ehrlich Zwingli, and the other Reformers. That's why sometimes it's called Reformed Soteriology or a Reformed View of Salvation, that God saves, a sovereign God saves. Um, it was the position of Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher, George Whitfield, and the great Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon. All were very strong in the sovereignty of God and election. For those alive today, John MacArthur, Chuck Swindoll, Alistair Begg, Al Moore, they all preach sovereignty. Yet today, admittedly, it's not the majority view. It is not the majority view out there. You look at scripture, you decide. What has God done? doesn't matter whether a majority view or the right view. You have to decide out of your own free will. No, I'm kidding. Over the years, I've, I've sadly heard many people, against all biblical evidence, our choice is a choice in response to him, but I've sadly heard many people proclaim God will never interfere with their free will, uh, yet they boldly claim that they can interfere with his. Who's God? Who's the potter and who's the clay? Uh, which do you profess yourself to be? Let's pray. Lord, especially heavy day, as uh, we look into deep doctrines, Lord, uh, of Scripture, is spiritual meat, as uh, we can't stay on milk forever. So thank you for uh, opening our minds to the Word, and Lord, just loving you for what you've done for us. Uh, Father, as those who've been made alive, and those who've responded to your, your gracious call, we worship you. We love one another with a love that you gave us. And Lord, we look forward to the day uh, that uh, we get to see you again. As Paul said, if you are for us, who can possibly be against us? Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.